0: Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24. Each week the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week we're counting down to the US midterm elections on November 8th, gauging the state of the race, considering the key questions that are shaping the discourse and asking what all of this means for investors. I'm delighted to say we have two of the key contributors to UBS's Election Watch report on the theme with us today. Tom McLaughlin, head of Fixed Income Americas, and Nadia Lovell, senior equity strategist, Americas. Tom, welcome back to the programme, and Nadia, and especially warm welcome uh, as you join us for the for the first time. I want to talk to you about this Election Watch series, the latest iteration, another great read. And we're just going to rattle through some of the kind of top 10 questions that you and your colleagues have picked out ahead of the, the ballot next week, of course. What are the key policy issues in play? Tom McLaughlin, I'll come to you first of all. Is it still, as it so often seems to be, the economy stupid? I know that was the sort of James Carville sign, wasn't it, from the Clinton campaign? Are hard to believe 30 years ago now. But is it still all about the economy? And if it is, does that mean that you know geopolitics just isn't going to be a factor?
1: Well, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is you're quite right. It was James Carville back in the 1992 election when Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush. And it's really become a useful way to remind observers of American politics that the state of the national economy almost always dictates the outcome of congressional elections. The economy is certainly the dominant issue here with inflation putting strain on household budgets. Uh, Three quarters of those surveyed last month by the Pew Research Center said it was the most important issue in their decision on the choice of candidates. The issue uh, was even more important for Republican voters. 90% of registered Republicans ranked the economy as the highest and most important issue. And on the one hand, that's not much of a surprise, Uh, pocketbook issues generally do transcend other topics and inflation is certainly hitting home. What's interesting I think is that the political peril posed by higher inflation was something the Biden administration frankly missed. The president was downplaying that issue earlier this year, right through the first quarter. And frankly, they've been playing catch up for some time now. Public safety, illegal immigration also ranked pretty high among voters who were surveyed, uh, particularly among, again, registered Republicans. Democrats are more focused on healthcare and abortion rights than are Republicans. That's not much of a surprise. And this certainly had an impact on some primary elections when we talked about abortion rights this past summer after the supreme court's decision to eliminate the federal constitutional right to abortion that the supreme court left it to the various states to regulate the issue still resonates but i think it's become apparent at this point certainly in the past month that it is beginning again to fall behind the economy as the dominant issue
0: yeah and and nadia i don't know if you wanted to jump in there or
2: yeah i think the other factor is foreign policy you know, uh, at UBS, we do a quarterly investment sentiment survey, and it's a global survey of 4,000 high network investors and business owners. And it includes about 1,400 here in the U.S. And in that survey, 73 percent of those investors cited foreign policy as top of mind for the upcoming midterm elections. You know, we've seen this year how much impact heightened geopolitical political risk can have on the economy, including the war in Ukraine. And also the tough stance that the U.S. has taken against China, particularly around the semiconductor chip industry in an effort to really protect U.S. technology competitiveness. So foreign policy, I would say, is also another factor that is not only for voters, but also for the markets in general.
0: Yeah, most definitely. Well, let me ask you uh, about the the Fed, Nadia, next. And I, I find this really interesting. I mean, is there a perception that, you know, the Fed's maybe made some missteps or errors so far? And I just wonder, what's your take on how that's affected markets, both within the US and, and without? And to what degree does what happens next week in the midterms shape or potentially reshape what the Fed might do next?
2: Yeah, you know the Fed has made some policy errors, but you know hindsight is always twenty twenty. You know interest rates were probably kept too long for too too low, and also quantitative easing in place for too long during the pandemic. But you know, like most, the Fed did think that high inflation was transitory, and that would debate as the pandemic kind of waned and supply chains bottlenecks really clear. But here we are over a year later, and inflation is above 8% at a 40-year high and continues to just surprise to the upside. So in order to really course correct, what the Fed has had to do is really embark on this most aggressive hiking cycle since we have seen since the 1980 and really front load uh, the rate hikes. Uh, this has caused a massive repricing across asset classes and send in equities and bond prices lower and also the U.S. dollar higher. You know, I think in terms of If the Fed's next action can be reshaped by the midterm, I would actually flip that the other way. I think it's more the Fed can reshape Washington whether it be the midterm election or the presidential election in two years, because the Fed's action has direct impact on the economy. You know, in that same investor survey that we've done here at UBS, um, 83% of investors listed the economy as top of mind for the upcoming election. And as noted in in earlier, that, you know, it is all about the economy. That is why some politicians have really criticized and tried to pressure the Fed in the past. You know, we've seen that from President um, Johnson, Reagan, and Trump. And even more recently, I would say, ahead of the November FOMC meeting, we saw Democratic senators really send a letter to Chairman Powell expressing concerns about the alarming pace of rate heights. So this is not deter the Fed. Uh, you know, Fed remains very determined to fulfill in its dual mandate, that is of price stability and maximum employment. You know, the near-term priority continues to be price stability because there is that belief that over the longer term, that that will lead to more sustainable maximum employment. And so we expect the Fed to remain on course and continue to hike regardless of the political outcome. And uh, the election, you know, in the November FOMC press conference, we did hear Chairman Powell made it clear that the terminal Fed funds rate um, for this cycle is likely to be higher than previously expected and stay there for much longer. So uh, that likely means that the Fed funds rate is going to move above 5 percent. And so we expect another 125 basis points or so in hiking into uh, early next year.
0: Well, yeah. One other aside on this: what about deficit management? Because plainly there are concerns about the level of the deficit, and there are you know the usual sort of implications to running higher deficits. Tom, just to sort of throw that over to you: do you think that pressures as relate specifically to that deficit could lead to more upheaval as we go into 23 and then even beyond that?
1: I believe it will, Tom. The question of the federal accumulated federal deficit has been kind of a quiet issue for about a decade now. But it's beginning to resonate primarily because the US accumulated deficit now exceeds $30 trillion. Uh, Rising rates based on the restrictive monetary policy that Nadia just described has made servicing that debt more expensive. And so there have been estimates that the increase in yields just this year will have increased the size of the national debt by another 2 trillion over and above what would have increased anyway. So I think the impact will be felt in a few ways. Counter-cyclical financial stimulus or fiscal stimulus will be much more difficult to employ during economic recessions, for example. The Congress will have less latitude in order to basically provide fiscal stimulus to counteract any sort of a slowdown in the economy. Tax cuts, which are favored by the GOP, will be more difficult to enact in the future, uh, even if they have a unified government after 2024, and social spending is going to come under a lot of pressure. So whereas, you know, we talked a lot about the deficit in the 80s and the 90s, and even just in the turn of the century, it's been a quiet issue, and I think that's about to change. Going forward, looking out two years, this will become a major issue in politics, and in fact, in how we do policy coming out of the Congress going forward. So yeah, I think it's gonna become a much bigger issue going forward.
0: Uh, look, let's shine a spotlight a little bit on the political outcomes specifically. Tom, I don't want to ask you an impossible question, but I, I know you never mind having a bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of speculation about control of the House, control of the Senate. Uh, you know, there are obviously you guys have your, your kind of base cases. Just tell us what they look like.
1: Sure. Uh, the odds that the Republican Party will assume control of the House of Representatives is exceptionally high. Midterm elections for the House generally are tied pretty closely to the president's popularity. That's what we've seen in history. And President Biden's job approval ratings are stuck in the low 40s, kind of in the same range that President Trump was experiencing in 2018, President Obama in 2010, when both of those elections resulted in in a turnover in control. So that's likely outcome in the House. The Democrats' advantage in the Senate races, remember that that in this particular cycle, the Republicans uh, were obliged to defend more seats than Democrats. But the Democratic advantage has dissipated in recent weeks, and the momentum today uh, is now favoring the GOP, and that's really kind of a change from about four or five weeks ago. So at this point, it's a toss-up for control of the Senate. There are seven different Senate races, for example, that are frankly too close to call. And you know, it, the one thing I, I often remind our clients is that it's important to remember that the divided government will still exist even if the Republicans control the Senate. The minority party in the Senate can still oppose legislation that it doesn't like, and we have saw that in this last Congress with Republicans often opposing some of the Democratic initiatives. And the reverse can be true if the Republicans take the Senate. So we expect that domestic legislation is only going to be enacted on a bipartisan basis for the remaining two years of, the, of Biden's presidential term.
0: Well, yeah. And just so, Tom, just on that point about Biden, you know, he's he's pretty canny. I think to some people's minds, he's probably done a bit better, actually, in the first couple of years. But how much more difficult is his job going to be then with the caveat that we don't know exactly how the sort of congressional race shapes up? How much more difficult is his job going to be to do, you know, in terms of moving his legislative agenda forward and generally getting things done?
1: Much more difficult. His ability to pass a domestic agenda is going to be quite limited there's a few things that probably in fact will definitely pass at least going into next year there's a big agriculture bill they often call it the farm bill this only comes up every five years and that's going to require bipartisan compromises but it's viewed as a quote must pass unquote bill so that'll happen probably in the third quarter of 23. the national defense authorization act is also another must pass piece of legislation that could happen in the lame duck session here in december or it could happen in the first quarter of next year but that will also will pass Beyond that, it becomes very tricky. You've got some potential if the Republicans take the Senate for a political compromise with the Biden administration regarding energy production, but that will be a a tough challenge as well. I think Biden will concentrate on foreign policy and managing the inevitable geopolitical crises that often arise. And this is to be expected. Uh, Something we wrote about last year, is that big domestic policy generally has to be accomplished in the first half of presidential terms. And we would expect Biden will make an effort certainly to broker a compromise on the farm bill, certainly do that on the defense bill. But beyond that, it just becomes difficult to see how much domestic policies will get enacted. I think, again, his, his focus is gonna turn overseas.
0: Uh, Nadia, just coming back to you, I, I guess, regardless of those potential political outcomes and the pressures as they're going to be operating on, on Joe Biden, we should prepare, I guess, at least for more volatility ahead, more market volatility ahead, however the sort of political cards fall.
2: I think so. I mean, historically, what you have tend to see is elevated volatility into an election, just given the political uncertainty and then the easing of that. And normally you would see a post-election market rally. But, you yeah, know, I think this year just feels very different, just given the uncertainty around the macro backdrop. So we do think that there's going to be more volatility ahead across the market, regardless of the political outcome. You know, right now, what's really key for market is monetary policy, you know, just how high interest rates will go. long they will stay there and the ultimate question is will the us end up in a recession and if so how long will that recession be and how deep a lot of this is data dependent you know largely driven by inflation and the job markets both of which remains very strong we're seeing Some easing on the inflation side on the good side, but service inflation still remains a problem and moving in the wrong direction. I mean, energy prices also remain very high and could move even higher as we enter into the winter months. I mean, there's upside risk to other commodities as well, especially if China does. Ease its zero COVID policy, which has hit in a lot of headlines recently and really fully come back online. And then also, food inflation has just been really sticky. And then, of course, some of this has to do with the war overseas in the Ukraine. You know, the uh, unemployment just remains very low. And I think that what needs to happen, the Fed wants to see that wage rates come down from that high 5% and more in sort of like the 3 to 4% range. So the, the path to get there is going to be, you know, move that higher target for the uh, interest rates higher and risk of recession. So And so that's going to pressure the economy and corporate profits. And therefore, that's going to create more volatility ahead.
0: Uh, well, Nandi, against that backdrop then of increased volatility, I think it's always instructive to look at what the, the meaning of all of these complex factors is for for investors who are obviously keen to try and make sense, make some canny decisions. A hard question, but h- how would you sum up what all of this may mean for investors in terms of how they can best position moving forwards?
2: You know, we we don't see like the election outcome itself as a major market moving event. I mean, as noted earlier, our base case disorder for a divided government, which is really largely priced in. I, I think that there might be some movements here and there at the industry and single stock level, both on the positive and the negative side. Um, I mean, for instance, defense stocks could see a republically controlled Congress as a a positive. Um, There's bipartisan support for an increase in defense spending, particularly just given the heightened geopolitical risk. But there's also an association that Republicans tend to push for larger um, defense budgets than Democrats. Financials could also see some Republican Congress as a positive, as that could lead to slightly less stringent regulatory environment. And then on the other hand, some of the stocks that are tied to green initiative could see some volatility is there's just unlikely to be another new climate legislation in a divided government, even though some of the things that already passed through the IRA should help some of those initiatives. I mean, ultimately sort of a divided government usually means gridlock um, for the market and the market usually likes that static quo. So we're not really changing any our allocation. We think that investors shouldn't either, but what we've been recommending is defensive positioning. Just given the economic uncertainty, uh, we just continue to favor value stocks over growth stocks as inflation remains particularly high, over 8%. And we think that higher interest rates will continue to be a headwind to growth valuation. So from a sector standpoint, we have a preference for healthcare, We have a preference for consumer staples and energy. And we have a least prefer on those most growth-oriented sectors like technology and um, consumer discretionary. You know, within fixed income, we favor high grade bonds and resilient credit, we really have been emphasizing this up in quality. We have a least prefer on high yield bonds, just given that, you know, debt refinance is becoming particularly more challenging for some of these companies in the face of higher interest rates. So that's how we think about positioning defensive and quality.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff. And Tom, just a final thought from you. We're going to actually hear in a moment about polling, a bit about the mood on the ground from some of our Monocle team stateside. Just from your point of view, though, I wonder how how useful is polling, particularly if we go back to where we started this conversation, you know, the economy is stupid. Is it always actually much more instructive to look at the the underlying economics? Because that probably tells you more about the direction of travel than what people may claim, whether they're being disingenuous or whether they're just not quite telling pollsters uh, the whole truth.
1: Well, it's interesting, Tom, the uh, the skepticism regarding polls has increased, obviously, over the course of the last decade. And it kind of reached a a bit of a climax in 2020 presidential election because the state-by-state polls showed the biggest error rates since 1980 when Ronald Reagan defeated President Carter by a much larger margin than anticipated. So we have to go back that far to show uh, an error rate as large as we saw in in, uh, 2020 presidential cycle you know biden was favored to win but his margin of victory was much narrower than expected given his lead in the polls and you know i looked into this a little bit and the american association of public opinion research did examine this in the wake of the last presidential election they did so in some detail and they concluded that unlike in 2016 it was not necessarily the shy trump voter uh, that came out in larger numbers than expected but it was probably it could have been sampling error Uh, Either too many registered Democrats were answering polling questions or perhaps registered Republicans who did participate might have been characterized by a greater likelihood to cross party lines to vote for Biden. So they're still struggling with an explanation. The problem appears to be bigger in presidential elections than during midterm elections where voter turnout is lower. So it may also be the fact that in presidential elections, you get an extra 20% coming in to vote that don't necessarily vote except every four years, and they may be more difficult to measure. It's certainly becoming more challenging for pollsters. I I asked the question when we talk about this internally, when was the last time you answered a call on your cell phone from a number you didn't recognize? (laughs) So I think many of us have, have employed kind of call screening as a much more common practice over the course of the last few years than we ever did when we were all connected to landlines. So all of which will make Tuesday's election a bit of an nail biter for both parties.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess who'd be a pollster, right? <laughs> it's it's like a, tough, a tough job that's getting tougher <laughs> it's all the time. It's getting top.
1: tougher every year, absolutely.
0: Well, look, Tom and Nadia, uh, lots of uh, complexities involved, but thanks so much for taking the time to unpack some of them for us. It's great to speak to you both. Thank you very much.
1: It's great talking to you again,
0: Tom. Thank you, Tom. Tom McLaughlin and Nadia Lovell. Well, next up, as mentioned, let me bring you a perspective from Monocle's correspondent in DC now, with a bit of a focus on the mood music ahead of the vote. The US polling agency Gallup has released its last look at the priorities and general mood of Americans ahead of next week's midterms, and it makes for pretty grim reading for Biden and Democrats. Monocle's Washington correspondent is Chris Chermack, and Chris spoke to Lydia Saad, the director of US social research at Gallup. She began by describing how the economy is having an impact on the election.
3: This year is an election when President Biden's job approval rating seems very linked to Americans' weak confidence in the economy. So he has a 40% job approval rating in our final poll, and when we ask Americans about current economic conditions, they're far more negative than positive in rating the economy. The economy rating feeds into President Biden's job approval rating, which um, doesn't bode well for his party. The other election that's similar to this would be 2010, which was President Obama's first midterm election year. He went into that election with a 45% job approval rating, which is also pretty low. Anything below 49, 50% is as challenging for an incumbent in an election year. And economic conditions ratings were almost exactly as weak at that time, coming out of the 2007 to 2009 recession with very high unemployment at that time. So, Negative economic perceptions in 2010 fed into President Obama's weak job approval rating in 2010, and his party lost 63 seats in that midterm year.
4: So the economy is a priority for many voters, but tell me more about the polarization in this election, also in terms of the main topics that voters perceive to be at issue.
3: We see polarization in almost everything we ask about, but certainly partisans, depending on whether their president is in power or not, are going to upplay or downplay problems. So, Republicans are much more likely to say the economy is extremely important to their vote than Democrats because they give a much worse diagnosis of the economy when we ask them to rate the economy. Democrats don't think the economy is all that bad, they think it's getting better. And only 33% say the economy is going to be very important to their vote. And we see that on all the issues. So, on immigration, The percentages rating that extremely important are 55% for Republicans, 22% for Democrats. Crime, 55% of Republicans, 27% for Democrats. Abortion is the one issue, really one of two issues that goes the other way. So 51% of Democrats say abortion will be extremely important to their vote. It's only 37% for Republicans. And then the most extreme difference is on climate change with 49% of Democrats rating that extremely important. 9% of Republicans. So very different perspectives about what's important in this election. We do live in a polarized world.
4: Yeah, there's certainly no question about that at the moment. But I did want to ask you, in terms of the polarization that you are seeing on topics, the way you describe it, between the things that voters care about is that something you saw in previous election cycles as well, or is that a new trend?
3: Not really. I've been doing this since at Gallup since 1992, and there's always been like a Rorschach test when you put issues in front of people. The partisans are just going to view those issues through their lens. So it's not brand new. What, what has gotten more significant is partisan ratings of the president, There was a time when if things were going well in the country, relatively well, that you might see 40% of the opposite party approving of the job the president's doing. Or we saw a lot more what we call rally events in the past where when there's a threat against the United States or some major galvanizing worldwide event, such as COVID, that you would see a rally among all partisan groups for the sitting president. All of this sort of started eroding, I would say, during the Iraq War, when partisanship, and and I don't know if it was the Iraq War so much as that kind of conflated with the start of social media and maybe the intensification of cable news, that there became less of a willingness to see positive in the other side, especially when looking at the president you know, that'll be interesting going forward to see if that ever reverses that, or if this is just the partisan, just rigidity that
4: we're stuck in right now. Now, you didn't necessarily ask about democracy or threats to democracy or election integrity in this specific poll, and whether that's a priority for voters. But what is the polling in general saying about that issue?
3: I think both political parties are concerned about election issues, but they have different concerns. So Democrats are concerned about access and Republicans are concerned about fraud. So in terms of trusting the outcome of elections, you know, both sides, when the election doesn't go their way, have things they can point to. Either certain groups of voters must have been suppressed or certain votes weren't counted there is like a pall over elections, just like there is on many institutions where public trust has just eroded over time on something that used to be just went without saying that we'd have an election and candidates would accept the results and the public would lick their wounds and move on. But we have seen in our trends, you know, confidence that the votes, you know, will be accurately counted, cast and so forth, some erosion of that.
0: Lydia Sard, the Director of US Social Research at Gallup, talking to Monocle's Chris Charmack. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts or discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.